Our guest speaker tonight is Greg Lee from Waynesboro. Uh, Greg is a uh, teacher and a preacher at the Waynesboro Church of Christ, teaches at the, uh, uh, at the high school technical center and advises uh, young people on their future. Uh, um, Greg is no stranger here because his uh, father, his sonny Lee, uh, Carolyn Turnmeyer is his aunt. Uh, he too, when, when uh, Greg was at Freed Hardman, a golf coach, two of his students, Zach Whitworth and Tyler Sales, uh, go here. They were two of his favorite players, right? <laughs> yeah, also, you better say that. Uh, but we're, uh, and, and Greg's wife, Amy, is here, and two of the three daughters. The third daughter's in Faith Farm. She went there last year when he spoke, and I think they had ice cream and had a Bible story movie and whatever, so Greg at dinner tonight asked her if she would come upstairs, and she said, no, she's not coming up here. She, she's down in Faith Farm. Uh, last year when Greg spoke, uh, Sonny wasn't here. He hightailed it with his other son down to Florida, I think. So, uh, you know, this year, though, we know that Greg is the favorite because uh, Sonny doesn't play golf on Wednesday, but he played golf today with uh, Tyler and uh, Sonny, and, and uh, so they had a good time today. So, anyway, we know I think maybe Greg has kind of moved into uh, the favorite spot. Plus, uh, Greg took a lot of mulligans today, and Sonny didn't complain, so, so that was pretty good. Uh, Greg spoke last year and did probably one of the better jobs I've ever heard on speaking on forgiveness. Very biblical last year and very practical. Uh, I know many people uh, got CDs or DVDs and took those with you to listen to them or give them to others. A very good practical lesson, and uh, we're grateful that Greg is with us. Uh, if you want to turn your Bibles to Mark 9, uh, the power to believe. All right, we'll try that again. Good evening. Good evening. All right, thank you very much. Don't fall asleep just yet. Okay, give me just a minute. Uh, thank you for being here, and thank you so much for, uh, for having me. It is an honor uh, to always come back and to speak, and uh, I don't get to say this a whole lot, so I'll say it tonight. Thank you uh, for what you do as a church family, uh, for, for my dad, for, for Sandy. Uh, I know they think the world of you guys, and uh, you know the older your parents get, uh, although dad's just not real, real old, but uh, the older uh, they get and the older you get, you, know, you tend to worry about them a lot, and uh, I know that they are so loved and uh, so welcomed here, and uh, so just want to say thank you uh, for, for all that you do. I appreciate Carrie and Lisa uh, feeding us tonight, and it's always a joy to be with them. And uh, I knew Carrie and Lisa before my dad and mom knew Carrie and Lisa, and then I knew Carrie and Lisa before Sales knew Carrie and Lisa and met Elizabeth. And uh, so it's kind of been uh, a neat relationship that we've had, and it's always good to see Zach and Tyler and two former uh, golfers of mine, and always good to see friends and just uh, so thank you very much for, for having us tonight. I appreciate your topic of faith, and I, I love the story in Mark chapter 9. So if you have your Bibles, as Carrie said, please turn there. If not, uh, they should be on the screen if the, the PowerPoint works well. Um, 
I used to have a really good friend. Uh, his name was Jeff Kinzer, and uh, we grew up together. Uh, we were the best of friends. We were always together, grew up in the same youth group. And um, I'll never forget the first time Jeff told me why people are bald. I, I never knew why people were bald. As you grow up, you see people with no hair, and you, you just don't know. And he told me, he said, Greg, people are bald because what happens is they, they eat too much. And as they eat and they get a little bigger and bigger, it just pushes the hair right on out the top of their head. Well, you know, growing up, Jeff was my best friend. Jeff wouldn't lie to me, right? Whatever Jeff says is, is true. And, and so I always believed that. And, and I've always been kind of that person, I guess. And obviously now I know that's not true or you'd be looking at Kojak himself right here tonight. Uh, but I, I had to learn that. And, and, and I would believe just about anything Jeff said or anybody else that I considered to be friends. But since I have become older, um, faith has kind of always been a little bit of a struggle for me. Uh, my nature is a lot of times to question and to wonder and uh, kind of ponder on some things. I, I'm not an easy believer. Some people are. And, and maybe that's you. But if you think about it, I think one of the greatest gifts that God has ever given any of us is we have the power to believe. I truly believe in my heart that that was probably one of the hardest things God ever did when he created man. Is he created us with the freedom to believe whatever it is that we wanted. And I believe that was very hard for God creating us. The giving us the power to make our own decisions and to believe whatever it is that we would like to believe in this world. About Him, about other things. There are people in this world, there are people in this room, I'm sure, and there are people that you probably know that have the gift of faith. Some people are just truly gifted believers. My mom was one of those people. And when I think about faith, when I think about gifted believers, I always think of her. I think about my wife, Amy. She is a gifted believer. I love the way her heart works and her mind works. She has that gift. Maybe you've struggled with your faith before in your life. I know I have. Some people struggle, some people don't. Maybe it happened the first time you ever went to the funeral of a child. Or maybe when you realize that some of your non-Christian friends or associates led much more moral lives and had far better relationships or attitudes than maybe even some of your Christian friends. You have an outline tonight, or most of you might have an outline tonight, because I, I like to work from outlines, and I also like to work on some filling in the blanks. And I do this as a teacher with my students, so if you don't like it, I apologize. But if you do, feel free to write away. Here's the first thing I want to make uh, mention tonight about faith. Faith is a mixture. Faith is a mixture of content, and it's also a mixture of commitment. You see, there is a faith by which we believe, and a faith by which we also exercise. We have this faith that we exercise. It's what we kind of call experiential type of faith. And then there is also the content of our faith, right? It's what we believe. It's our doctrine, if you will. 
In other words, one is this act of trust, and the other one is kind of the content of the things in which we believe. John Westerhoff, uh, several years ago, wrote a book entitled, Will Our Children Have Faith? And in his book, that I thought was really good, he suggests that the faith pilgrimage has four stages. And I want to give those to you real quickly tonight because I thought they were interesting. The first stage he calls the floaters stage. Okay? The floaters. And this is what he says about floaters. Floaters say things like, I'm not really sure what I believed, and I'm not all that concerned about it either. They just kind of float around. If they hear something they like and they think it's great, they start to believe in that. Next thing you know, they're floating around to something else, and then they might just start believing in that. This person has very little commitment, and they ask very few questions. But here's the second one. He says the second stage is an inherited faith. This person believes because of the people with whom they affiliate, they believe. You believe because you belong to a group of believing people. This person may be very strong in their commitment, Westerhoff says, but these people don't know why that they're committed. You, you kind of learn to uh, common answers to common group questions. Hey, I hear you're a member of the Church of Christ. Yeah, yes, I am. Well, why are you a member of the Church of Christ? Well, my mom and dad were members of the Church of Christ, and my grandparents were members of the Church of Christ, and, well, I... I just inherited. You guys, you don't, you guys don't have instrumental music in your worship, is that right? Yeah, why is that? Well, it's inherited. <laughs> it's just something we've always done, right? And so they don't really know like a basis for it. It's because it's been inherited. And this kind of person will a lot of times ask, what do we believe? I mean, we have faith, we have a belief system, but a lot of times these people just don't know why they believe what they believe. And Westerhoff made a good point in his book. He said, this kind of faith is very good. It's very appropriate in the early stages of faith development. But then he reminds in his book, the Bible says, when I was a child, I talked and thought like a child. But when I became a man, I put away those childish things. So you have the floaters, you have this inherited faith, and then number three, you have a searching type of faith. Searchers, what Westerhoff said, they're former inheritors or they're former floaters. And what they do is they start asking questions. They start trying to go through this process of finding answers. And Westerhoff says in his book, at this stage, many people drop out or they just kind of return back to that inherited stage where they're very nice people, he says, but their faith just kind of lacks something. He says it's the difference between setting a green plant on a mantle and growing seed from the soil. He said the danger, though, in this stage is, is that you love questioning about things more than you love committing to a faith. And in fact, he says you fulfill the statement in the Scripture about those who are forever learning but never come to the truth. But then he said there's a fourth stage that we're all striving for, and it's what he calls an own faith. He says this type of faith is yours. You possess it. This is the type of faith that is going to be there to help you and to change you. This type of faith, 
Westerhoff says, you know when you've gone through it. You know when you're there because he says you are able to say, I know whom I believe. I know whom I believe. I've gone through this fire and I know what my faith is about. And he says, you know when you reach this stage. And he says what's interesting is not every question's answered in your mind. Not every question's even answered in your heart. But there is a depth to your faith that you can only know when you come to know God personally. When you've experienced God personally. When you come to know God, obviously, reading, hearing about Him, you experience God when you obey Him. Now, Westerhoff said something in his book about these stages. He said 70% of church people never get past level two, inherited faith. And he says not only do they not get past it, but they get nervous when someone pushes them to grow. Friends, if you have never struggled with your faith tonight, please enjoy your nap, and we'll see you in a few minutes. But if you can relate to the statement that we're about to read in Mark chapter 9, where this father says, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. I want to remind you of this story in Mark chapter 9, and we're going to begin in verse 14, and it reads this. And when he came to the disciples, he saw a great multitude around them and scribes disputing with them. Immediately when they saw him, all the people were greatly amazed, running to him, greeted him. And he asked the scribes, what are you discussing with them? And then one in the crowd answered and said, Teacher, I brought you my son who has a mute spirit, and wherever it seizes him, it throws him down. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. So I spoke to your disciples that they should cast it out, but they could not. And he, being Jesus, answered him and said, O faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him to me. And then they brought him to him, and when he saw him, immediately the spirit convulsed him. He fell on the ground, wallowed foaming at the mouth. So he asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childbirth or childhood. And in verse 22, and often he has thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can believe... All things are possible to him who believes. And immediately the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Now, a little background here to this story. Jesus has been uh, on the mountain of transfiguration. He's kind of been away with his best friends for uh, maybe a little spiritual retreat, so to speak. And Jesus kind of comes back down to the valleys of everyday life and ministry. And the disciples, they were not able to cast out this demon. The demon rendered the boy uncontrollable, helpless, self-destructive. Jesus arrives, and perhaps the disciples think, well, he's come to the rescue. But instead, when you read this story, it's almost like Jesus kind of gives them a little spiritual uppercut, if you will. I mean, you can, you can read this story and kind of sense the disappointment and the frustration of Jesus in the face of someone who has unbelief. 
And he says, has there been a generation since that has been so unbelieving? And he's talking to the scribes and to the disciples who are around Jesus every day of their lives. Jesus is weary of unbelief. Unbelief is a hard shackle to break. And let me just remind you, we serve a God who understands. And he understands this. And one of the things that I love about this story is the way in which Jesus and the Father kind of interact here. The, the Father just comes to Jesus with total, unabashed honesty. Here is a man who wants his son to be healed, but he has mixed emotions. The tension between what he wants and what he believes and what he doubts just kind of comes into full light. Because this father is kind of in a state of spiritual schizophrenia, if you will. You ever been there? I think most of us can agree we have. And so the response of the father in our story is one of integrity. Lord, I believe. I do. I really, really believe. But when I don't, Lord, please help me to rise above and remember who you are. And so what's great about this story, Jesus doesn't condemn the man. He takes the man right where he is with his simple, limited belief. He honored the man's willingness to be authentic, what Jesus loves. But why did the Father have these mixed feelings? You ever thought about that? Why did the Father have these mixed feelings? Well, number one, I think of the undeserved trouble. You see, the problem of evil... It's kind of a philosophical question that, let me just be honest with you, I'm not going to be able to answer for you tonight. And it's been asked for years. For many people, they assume that either God is not all-powerful, or he could stop the evil, or God is not all-loving, or he would stop the evil, or a lot of people think that maybe God just is not at all. We can understand trouble when people make rebellious choices, foolish choices, and they kind of invite trouble upon themselves. But when we see evil visited upon innocent children, like in this story, I think that's why the father had these mixed feelings. First time I ever struggled with my faith was on February 4th of 1991. I have a brother, older brother named Scotty, and he and his wife Tammy were expecting their first child. Her name's Morgan. Morgan was to be the first grandchild, first niece or nephew for me on our side of the family. And on February 4th, she came, and I remember a lot of us were at the hospital, and we were waiting on Morgan to be born, and we thought it would be just like any other birth. She would be born, she'd get her cleaned up, Scotty would just walk her out, show us to everybody. Matter of fact, my sister-in-law, Tammy, her dad didn't even leave work and come to the hospital. He thought, well, it'd just be like every other grandchild I have. She's born right away. I'll see it later on. I'll stop by on the way home from work, and I'll see her. Because that's what we a lot of times think. Morgan was born with spinal bifida. It's a birth defect, a lot of us know, in which there is a bony defect in the uh, vertebral column so that part of the spinal cord, which is normally protected, is exposed. And, and people who have spinal bifida can suffer from bladder and bowel um, problems, cognitive learning type problems, limited mobility. 
I'll never forget, I was standing down at the end of this hallway and Scotty comes out of the room, last room on the right. He's not smiling. He's just walking down. And he gets about halfway down and he kind of stops a little bit and he gets my mom and dad's eyes and he, he motions them to him. I could see the worried look on my brother's face, something that I wasn't used to seeing in a bigger brother. And as my mom and dad reached him, he just kind of lowered his head. And my mom and dad just kind of put their arms on him. And I, I couldn't hear what they were talking about. And, and after a few minutes, they all went back into the room. And then Scotty came back out and he got me. And he said, Greg, she, she wasn't even moving when she was born. I, I thought she was dead. I, I thought she was paralyzed. I, I didn't know what was wrong. So they rushed her into another room and immediately gathered this team of doctors together because in 91, spinal bifida was still fairly new. They didn't really know what all was really the best treatment for it. And I just remember Scotty putting his hand on my shoulder and he said, Greg, I just want you to say a prayer for my daughter. And I just turned around and I started walking down another long hallway all by myself. I cried and I pleaded with God, please help Morgan. You see, it was kind of like this boy in this story. What has he done? Why is he like this? What has he done to deserve this attack? And I asked the same questions. God, why? What has Morgan done to deserve being born with spinal bifida? Why was she having to deal with these demons? Why, God? And so my faith starts questioning just like yours probably has before. I mean, I know that Satan is the evil one. I know that sin is responsible for most of the suffering in this world. God did not make us bad, but he did make us free. And freedom has choices, and choices has consequences. I get all that. And I would not want God to take away my freedom because it's that freedom that allows us to choose what is good, what is right, what is holy. But then it was a long look at the cross that I think which was most helpful for me. Because on the cross, God, Jesus, who was innocent, suffered evil. And the empty tomb reminds us that Jesus on the cross conquered the evil one. So trusting God to do for Morgan like he did for this boy, conquer the forces of evil in your life? Because Jesus came to destroy evil. And so I like to think about things a little bit different when it comes to God than other people. If God is all-powerful, He can defeat evil. And if God is all-loving and good, He will defeat evil. Therefore, the days of evil are numbered, right? So I believe with this father, he struggles first and foremost because he sees the undeserving trouble on his boy and what he's going through. But then I think there's another lesson. I believe the father had mixed feelings. And it was because of what I like to call the powerless disciples. You see, faith was a struggle for him because he saw the inability of the disciples to help as a reflection upon Jesus Christ. I, I brought you my boy. 
And I expected you to heal him. Aren't you Jesus' disciples? Actually, the disciples had been the ones who had tried to help the boy, right? The father saw the disciples as representatives of Christ. And whatever they could or could not do is what Jesus could or could not do. Now, friends, I think that's a great lesson for us in this story tonight. We, too, are reflections of faith every day of our lives as to what God can and cannot do, what He values and does not value. You see, I've always said churches today, we cannot afford to take minor points, trite things, and make them our only message. There are searchers out there. And they're not visiting your church or our church and think they're just looking to see if it's better than some church down the road on this or that. No, they want to know God. They want to know what God can do for their life and we become a part of that answer to their search for God. Why? Because we are reflections of Jesus Christ. It's kind of like the story I heard of a churchgoer who was talking to his neighbor they were out in the backyard. The neighbor was doing some hammering, and he, he hit his finger, and he kind of let loose with some colorful language. And the churchgoer kind of chided him for his salty tongue, and the neighbor said, Look, I use bad words a lot, you preach a lot, but neither one of us really means what we say, right? Maybe there's some truth to that. Friends, we do need to all remember that we are reflections of the Father in everything that we may do, because we too are his disciples. Now, the good news is that Jesus does not withhold his blessing to the Father or his Son because of the ineptness of his disciples. And so my message to you tonight, if you are struggling for faith and you know Christians who maybe don't live with joy or peace or righteousness or you're growing up in a home that's marginally religious, what do you do? Well, you do what this father did. You just press past everybody else until you get your boy to Jesus. The one who never disappoints. Because Jesus is not limited by the inadequacies of his disciples. Jesus is not limited by the inadequacies of his church. Don't let the flaws of Christians be a reason to stop believing. You can see the severity of this case. It was with reluctance, even at the command of Jesus, that this spirit finally comes out of the boy, right? It cried out. Scripture says it convulsed. It left him for dead. And Jesus picked him up by the hand and restores him. But when I get to this point of the story, though, every time I start asking this question, why were the disciples spiritually impotent? Why couldn't they heal this boy? Well, I want you to notice verse 28 and verse 29 of Mark 9. It says, and when he had entered his house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Now, some versions, not all, some versions will say by prayer and fasting. But Jesus has kind of gone indoors, and so they ask the question, why? I mean, why couldn't we do this? They could not understand their failure. Matter of fact, if you go back to chapter 3 and chapter 6 in Mark 9, they drove out demons, the disciples did. They kind of fancied themselves 
to be kind of experts in the business of exorcism. They believed they could do it. So why did they fail? Because Jesus said, remember what he said? They were an unbelieving generation. Now, wait a minute. Greg, you said they had faith. Yes, they had faith. But you know what I think? I think they had faith in themselves. I believe they had faith in themselves. They had faith in a process that they had been using, but it had replaced their faith in God. I think without the disciples even realizing it, they had transferred their faith from confidence in a God who can act to a formula that can just bring it out. You see, that's what I think we often do a lot of times in our life. We sometimes get to thinking that it's the words we say or how we say them or what is happening in our lives which is the real reason things happen rather than a God who acts. When Jesus said this kind can only come out by prayer, he didn't mean some secret little exorcism prayer. Jesus didn't pray, did he? His disciples had cast out enough demons along the way that I think that they became confident in themselves. All the success had kind of gone to their heads, and so that their prayer and their praise had become hasty. Their ongoing daily relationship with God was not one of dependence and reliance upon them. I mean, these disciples, they were great men, were they not? But friends, I think the greatest lesson we can learn about these 12 men, the one thing that Jesus constantly rebuked them for, their lack of faith. And they were with them every day for close to three years. And Jesus didn't mean a prayer that was uttered at the right moment because Jesus himself didn't pray like we said. He's not talking about a certain kind of prayer that you say just at the right moment when you want to relieve someone of a demon. He means a lifestyle of prayer because this is what Scripture says. This kind cannot be driven out except by a heart which is kept fresh and alive and in touch with God by a life of prayer. That's what he's talking about. Maintaining a relationship with God and trusting in Him, that's a lifetime of prayer. I believe these disciples became self-deceived thinking that this gift was theirs and that they had the power. That they were the power instead of the vessel through whom the power flows. And friends, that's a great lesson for us to remember tonight. We're not the power. We're just the vessel for which the power can flow. This kind of demon flees from someone who lives in the presence of God is what Jesus is trying to tell them. I read the other day, did you know that the summer is the most important time for a moose? The moose, it said, with the best diet in the summer will have the strongest antlers in the fall. This guy was using this as kind of a little devotional, and then he went on to say, if you're a moose, you have to get ready for the battle months in advance, right? And I think that that's what Jesus was saying to these disciples. If you just keep pulling out the same words, if you just keep saying the same things, but you are not living in the presence of God, then that's what your life is going to turn into. 
You know what? This coming week, God may bring you into an opportunity and whether or not you can help might depend on how you have prepared. What your regular walk with God might look like. Maybe we've allowed our devotional life to become fatigued and, and malnourished. What do you do when your spiritual life is in poor shape? Do you just cover it up? Do you just begin to think that you can do it on your own? My, my wife is the greatest teacher I know. She's about to start her 23rd year in teaching. I'm about to start my 12th. How many of us teachers, and if there's other ones in the room tonight, how many of us teachers... Spend time praying to God every day to work through us. Or have we taught so much that we just think, I got this. God, take a break. <laughs> Go help somebody else. I got this. How many of us have worked at the same job for 30 plus years or done the same type of career and every day we've gotten to the point to where I don't need God, I've got this. I know exactly what to do. Friends, we can even get so good at doing church that we think we don't even need God. And that's a scary thought. We can learn our tasks so well that we come to trust in ourselves and our efforts and we no longer feel like we even need to be visited by God. You see, I think it's very possible for all of us to become unbelieving disciples. So what would Jesus say about our generation? What would Jesus say about me? Am I an unbelieving disciple, a follower of Jesus that is maybe a little bit too full of himself from time to time? I mean, do I get in such a rush every week that I don't even spend time praying that God will help me as I prepare sermons from week to week? It's a scary thought. And that's exactly where Satan would like to put us all. Now I want to conclude tonight real quickly with five small steps that I think can help us all as we kind of feed our faith. And here's number one. Decide if you want to believe. Pretty simple, right? But if you read through Scripture enough, you kind of get the picture. Faith is ultimately a decision. Friends, you will never have enough evidence. John chapter 7 says, If a man chooses to do God's will, he will find out if my teachings come from God. Friends, you will find out in the process of obeying God if it's true. And every day, you make the decision to decide, I'm going to be a believer. And the pilgrimage is a daily decision. Today, I'm going to believe. Decide if you want to believe. Here's number two. Develop faith-building relationships. In Timothy's second letter, we see where he had a great relationship with Paul. Timothy had kind of uh, imitated Paul's faith, if you will. And you know what? That's exactly what faith is, right? Faith can be molded. Faith can be caught. Maybe you're like me and you were able to catch the awesome faith that you saw in your parents. And you were able to take that and it helped you. Groups kind of give us that opportunity to even catch one another's faith. Now, in every church, this one included, friends, there will be people who will fall short of what we really truly ought to be. We are not perfect. None of us are. But we are people of faith. So humble yourself before God's people. A disciple is always a learner. Call no man teacher. 
Always stay in a learning mode. Decide if you want to believe. Develop faith-building relationships. And here's number three. Define the correct object of your faith. You might be putting your faith in the wrong thing. Some people put their faith in their parents. Some people put their faith in their preacher or their church. John chapter 20 says, By believing in Jesus, you may have life. Friends, the only one worthy of faith is Jesus Christ. Press past all the others, just like this father did. Push past all the others till you get to Jesus Christ. Here's number four, and a big one in our world today. Deposit faith-building material in your mind. The Word of God destroys unbelief. Bibles destroy unbelief. And we need to watch what it is the type of things that are filling our minds. Do we have quiet times? Do we make time for quiet times? Do we make good choices about what fills our mind? Because you know as well as I do, you can pretty much get anything from television today. Computers, phones, social media. So much fills our minds today. Deposit the faith-building material you need. The Bible is not a history book. It's a manual for our life. The words I speak to you are of the Spirit, and they are life. And you know what? All behavior is based on a belief, and the Word of God in your mind will change your life because it will renew your mind. You know, the words repentance, I think, have become kind of viewed negatively in our culture today. Uh, Repentance is not always something public. Repentance simply just means to change the way I think. It means to change the way I think about something to the way God thinks about something. And it's not always public. Maybe it's private. Maybe tonight it's private for you. You can decide after a time of study, after a time of prayer, that repentance needs to take place in your heart and in your mind. Repentance, it's a mind change that results in a behavior change. But then finally, here's number five tonight. Determine what faith would do and do it. Friends, we cannot grow our faith by just sitting around and disobeying. You can't do it. You know about God by reading the Bible. You know God by obeying Him one day at a time. If you have heart trouble... Do you go to a dentist? Do you go to a foot doctor? No, we we all go to a cardiologist, right? And if you have spiritual questions, let me ask you, who do you go to? Do you go to people who have tried it, people who have, you've seen their faith in action, or if you go to people who don't? I mean, who knows more about prayer? Those who scorn prayer or those who pray? I think it's interesting about these disciples and Jesus and their relationship in the Bible. I think it's interesting that Jesus did not start out by asking his disciples, who do you think I am? Jesus started out by saying, I want you to follow me. And then only later in that relationship did he ask, who do you think I am? Because it was by following Him and obeying Him that they really, truly came to know who He was. And friends, we will come to know who He is truly when we obey Him as well.
So this evening, looking at this story and talking about faith, I'll close with this question. What, what's faith asking you to do tonight? You know, believing is much harder than I thought it would be, especially during some very difficult times in my life. And I am so thankful that there are people who are gifted in the area of faith. And I hope and pray that they continue to rub off on me. May they continue to rub off on the rest of us and help us to overcome those times that we have unbelief. Friends, even religious people can have unbelief. But we have to approach God with honesty and a life filled with trust as we build this wonderful, wonderful relationship with Him. And for those of you who want to believe more than you do, I want to encourage you tonight that even when you are not full of faith, be honest. Because God is faithful. He understands. He took this father right where he was. He didn't scold him. He didn't blame him. He took him right where he was. He understood and he loved him. And he understands, even in our lives, that faith does not always come easy. And he even accepts appeals like this father. Lord, I believe. Please help my unbelief. And the reason he accepts those appeals, it's not because we are faithful. But it is because he is so loving, gracious, and merciful. Let's pray tonight as we close. Father, thank you so very much for this evening, and thank you so very much for the time to pause in the middle of a busy week uh, to focus on you and your word. Father, we are so thankful for this powerful story of faith. Father, thank you for understanding when faith is a struggle in our lives, and thank you for being so patient with us when we too say, Lord, we believe, but help our unbelief. And Father, thank you so very much for your continual love. Help us, Father, to all be searchers and never be ashamed of that faith stage as we strive to grow closer to you each and every day of our lives. And Father, please help us to remember through your teachings that we can come to you at any time, any time in our lives with faith like that of a mustard seed, and you will never, ever turn us away. Thank you so much for loving us, Father. Thank you so much for saving us. We love you, and it's in Jesus' name we pray, and amen.